One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. Community development. It's a puzzle. Nowhere we can think of has done it perfectly. Choose any city and you'll find issues. But one thing's for sure, the people who live in a place are the ones most keenly aware of what's needed there, and yet they are usually the ones with the least decision-making power about how their communities develop and change especially when they're poor or people of color. Majora Carter grew up and came of age in the 1970s in the South Bronx in New York, one of this country's toughest places at one of its toughest times. Since then, her neighborhood's seen billions of dollars of investment from all the usual sources, but very little of that has lifted up the people who live in her neighborhood. More often, it's displaced them or cost them as a problem to be fixed. Majora Carter long ago waded into this fray, deciding not to leave, but to stay and to do development differently. A self-described, quote, chick from the hood with zero experience in real estate, over the last 30 years, she's led a fight against a proposed waste management facility, spearheaded the creation of a new riverfront park. She started her own consulting firm, received a MacArthur Genius Award and a Peabody for her podcast. And in 2017, she and her husband launched the Boogie Down Grind Cafe, a hip hop themed cafe in Hunts Point, the Bronx, that survived and even thrived during COVID with a bit of help from Beyonce. Her book, Reclaiming Your Community, You Don't Have to Move Out of Your Neighborhood to Live in a Better One, is just out from Barrett Cola. Majora Carter, welcome to the program. I'm glad to have you. Congratulations on the book and so much more. We're going to get into all of it. But we have to start where I think probably our, our audience last saw the Bronx, which was in news footage of a fire just this January. Tragic. Killed, I think, 17 people, eight kids. Um, as you watched that, 77, I mean, years since 1977 when the Bronx was said to be burning, what went through your head? I mean, first of all, just... Your prayers for the people that made it out and, and serious concern for the families that lost people because there were many. Um, it definitely touched people that I know. So that was a problem. Um, it didn't remind me of, you know, the kind of, you know, what we went through during the era of the burning Bronx, because that was sort of a, this was a tragic accident. What happened in the Bronx uh, in the 1960s and 70s was actually the, the manifestation, you know, of the kind of policies, whether it's redlining, you know, um, horribleness in, in, the, in, the, um, in the banking industry, lack of capital to communities that, that uh, in, like the South Bronx, that was like the like a, the manifestation of I think systemic racism and how it actually worked on the ground in our communities. At the same time, it did sound like there was poor maintenance, bad fire escapes, you know, poor people clumped together with very little upkeep and care. Not enough has changed, and that's part of the point of your book, clearly. But just to remind people, I mean, who perhaps have only that image of the Bronx, it only makes it into their news when some disaster or tragedy hits. Tell us what else they need to know to fill out the picture. Well, 
there have been some amazing changes here in the Bronx. And a lot of it was actually, the good stuff, frankly, was actually led by people from our community, which is what my book is about. Um, it's called Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. And it is literally about uh, our approach to community development, which is talent retention. And we sort of borrowed that idea from the, uh, from the business world, where in, like a company doesn't hire people, pours training dollars into them and all sorts of stuff so they can go work for somebody else. You know, they want them to impact the bottom line, you know, of their company. And, but in American low status communities, um, you know, which is a phrase that I use now, I'll, I'll, if you, I'll happy to explain it. It's basically people sort of sub know what that means when they hear it. It's the, the kind of places where there's, you know, low educational attainment, higher rates of, of, of health, out, poor health outcomes. Um, excuse me, you know, even more people are involved in the justice system. They're the kind of places where inequality is essentially assumed by people both inside and outside the community. And you see it in terms of the kind of economic developments that are there as well. More liquor stores and health clinics, um, very high amounts of, of very subsidized low-income housing and homeless shelters, things like that. And those that's where you'd see those places. But again, it's inequality is assumed in those places. And um, yeah. Well, but I want you or and I want you to tell us a little bit about the other side of the picture. Yes. So the other side of that, what happens in, in those in our communities is that, you know, we've been led to believe that you need to measure success by how far you get away from our communities. Um, it's almost as if there's like we see brain drain happening here, like the most talented ones within our communities are the ones there's all sorts of programs, you know, to sort of help them get out of here. And so whether they're, you know, artistically or creatively or um, academically, athletically gifted, there's there's an expectation that you're going to grow up and measure success by how far you get away from there. And I know that because I was one of those kids. Yeah. yeah. Did you grow up thinking that you would stay there? Of course not. I grew up like being told literally and telling myself like I am, you know, I've got a good brain. I'm going to get out of here. And like my teachers said, so my mom and dad said, so, and it was just like, yeah. And, you know, and growing up, you know, I often say I was planning my escape when I hit seven years old, when at the beginning of the, of the summer, I watched both buildings at either end of my block burn down. And at the end of the summer, my brother was killed, you know, and because of the gang violence here. And I was like, I'm out, like I'm going to use education and, and to get out. And I did, but what we've been seeing, especially over the past several years, you know, are that the, the talent within our community, all those, those strivers, the ones that are, are told and are expected to kind of move out once they make it, are staying here, opening up businesses and being a part of the culture that is a part of our community. They are totally dismissing this idea that the nonprofit industrial complex like places on us, that poverty is a cultural attribute and, and neighborhood preservation is basically what's done in terms of development in places like this, that essentially says, well, this is what this community is. Again, inequality is assumed. So we're not gonna set up the conditions for the, the talented ones to stay. We're gonna make sure, we're gonna make sure that those that they get out of here. And, and that's that. You use the term, and you've used it here, you use the term low status to refer to communities that other people perhaps are used to hearing referred to as low income. Can you talk about why? Yeah, low status um, was a phrase that I heard that I thought 
more, it took it away from just the idea of, of income and, but really put it on the equality spectrum. Cause it's the kind of places where inequality is assumed by people both inside and outside of those communities. And it's whether or not, you know, and, but, and they might look different depending on the community that, that you're in, but ultimately it's um, the kind of places where low health outcomes, you know, are, are rampant, where there's more opportunities, you know, for people to have lower educational attainment, higher rates of people in the justice system. And the architecture of those places also looks like, um, you, you know it when you see it, there are more liquor stores in those places, there are more homeless shelters, there's more um, poverty in general. And those places are the kind of where just people just assume, whether it's our government, the nonprofit world, people in our community assume that that's what's happening. So where has all that money gone? Let, let's start there. I mean, if, if you can still have buildings burning, and, and you're right, the situation's not the same, but it's not good enough. It's not different enough today, given how many billions you write have been poured into the South Bronx. Right. Where is that money gone? Right. Well, and and where has it come from? I say it comes from the usual sources, but you want to lay them out? Yeah. I mean, as you know, billions of philanthropic and government dollars go into certain neighborhoods, but, you know, they'll go to things like um, very highly subsidized affordable housing. You know, where there's homeless shelters and, and for housing for very low income goes there. Um, pharmacies and healthcare, you know, the lifestyle illnesses that are that are um, you know being also paid to treat uh, those those kind of conditions from diabetes and um, you know heart conditions, you know, as opposed to like really treating, you know, the action, they, they sort of treat the symptoms as opposed to the causes of what's actually happening in those communities. And um, so we continue to concentrate whether it's health clinics and pharmacies, you know, affordable rental housing, um, you know, those are the kind of things that we see. So yeah, lots of money is going into those places. Lots of it. You have a problem with pharmacies and community centers? Well, when it's pretty much the major, um, you know, uh, and when it's the major way for folks for billions of dollars of economic activity, to come into a community that's basically not there to support people's traje economic trajectory. Yeah, I have I do have a problem with it when it's banking on, you know, the fact that the 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 case that there's more opportunities for the people that are providing those services versus the people who are actually getting them and not and we're not seeing any improvement in health outcomes or educational attainment or anything like that in those communities because we continue to concentrate poverty there. Yeah, I have an issue with that. So really there's no trajectory in mind. There's fixing people in place in mind. And, and that's what you write about. And that's what you say that you felt um, in those times when you were thinking about coming or going from the Bronx. Talk about what, what got you to stay, what, what committed you to the place and, and what you love about it. Well. Um, I wasn't trying to, to come back to the Bronx, but I had, you know, started my graduate program at NYU and I needed a cheap place to stay. And the cheapest place was my old bedroom at my parents' house, period. And, uh, but once I got here, um, I got connected to this uh, amazing um, young man who had actually started a community center, um, or excuse me, a, actually an arts program in the community. And, and it really, I had no idea there were that many creative and artist folks like in the South Bronx. 
And I was one of them. So I was just like, oh my gosh. And so that kind of made me want to stay. And because suddenly I found a tribe, but then, you know, I realized that the city was planning on building a huge waste facility on, on our waterfront. And we had already handled an enormous amount of waste services and other types of, you know, noxious environmentally burdensome places. And um, that's when I realized like all the arts and creativity in the world is not going to save us. And that's when I started, you know, think in recognizing that here I was, you know, this person who left the community because I was told I could do better things outside of it. And, you know, and I, and, but I was stuck, struck with a really harsh realization that this happened because was happening to our community because we happen to be poor people of color and thus politically vulnerable. And I was like, oh, you know, I could pretend I don't see that and just move on, or I can be a part of the change I wanted to see in my own community. Now, it hasn't been easy, and you write about how it hasn't been easy, um, because you have been trying to sort of spearhead a, a different path. Mm-hmm. And you got in particular trouble using the word self-gentrification, which wasn't your term in the first place, but got you into trouble. Can you talk about why and how you think about that term today? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just the gentrification part, you know, that people, it's just a trigger word for folks, even though self-gentrification, many that got it were just like, oh my gosh, that makes perfect sense. And just what, who, as far as I know, created the term, it was, uh, uh, his name was President Ronald Carden, Carter, who was the head, no relation, but who was the head of a, a, a historically black college down in Charlotte called Johnson C. Smith University. And they did something that was, I thought was amazing. The, the college worked with some financial partners and some local developers, literally right outside, you know, where the, the college was located. And they started working on development. Like the college actually used its, its, its um, you know, its access, you know, to these bankers to help the, the people in the local community. And they worked together and it was amazing. And, um, but everybody wasn't in on that, you know, from the community. And of course they saw development because to so many, you know, people within, you know, um, lower status communities, any kind of development, of course, could not possibly be done by us because that's just the, the narrative that's often presented. And so they just assumed that it was somebody trying to gentrify them. And so they said so. And he, and Dr. Carter was like, no, like, look who's doing this work. It's people from your own community. And if anything, it's self gentrification. It's not, gentrification. It's like, this is development that's, that's by us and for us. And so I love that phrase. And I thought, oh my goodness, this makes perfect sense. And again, initially, you know, a bunch of folks really got it. And they were just like, yeah, we like nice things too. You know, why do we have to like wait for the neighborhood to get, have, you know, folks from, from outside the neighborhood to get better? Why can't we enjoy what's here? It's like, yeah, I want a better neighborhood. Yeah. Like here. And so, but then there were definitely others who were like, Oh, she's just gentrifying it. And I'm like, no. And and it was it was fascinating because I think some people just heard gentrification and that was it. But we don't even use it anymore because it's just it's just too much. And I, you know, it just gets in the way of I mean, look, look, the people who want to have a conversation will have a conversation no matter what. But I don't want to give anybody a reason not to have a conversation about it just because like it's triggered some kind of crazy emotions in them that you can't move beyond. So we just like took it out of our mental dictionary. Well, so to come back to the idea of reclaiming a community, you don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. 
let's just dwell here for a little bit because it's complicated. And I've been in the last few years, I think since we last saw each other, to a lot of places that were wrestling with this, where, whether it was New Orleans after Katrina, where they said, this isn't recovery what we're seeing here, it's removal of, of the people who've lived here. Or, or Baltimore, where you saw, you know, a rebellion um, after a police killing really try to raise the issues of development in a community. And I remember somebody saying to us on the show, it's not that we don't want development here. We just want to have a piece of it, a, a part in it, some say. So, so how do you facilitate that say when you government could say, well, we have community boards, we have surveys, we people just don't show up to the meetings. Well, no, that's that's nothing. I mean, I would add what they want is, is equity, you know, period, as in the money, like not not the equity, the way progressives talk about it, because that doesn't create wealth for anybody. You know, the problem is that we've got this huge wealth gap, you know, based on the fact that there were entitlement programs, you know, starting from the 1600s for white folks in this country that people of color didn't get straight up. So it's real easy, you know, to say, and I, and I hear this a lot, like, oh, you know, you know, there's, there's, you know, we want to hear your, 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 your input into development. It's like, no, how about we like you help set us the access to capital so that we can actually do it. So how about you like get rid of some of the racist, ridiculous standards that allow us to make sure that we don't participate in it and do something like that. How about, um, you know, there's, you know, I mean, I find it so crazy. Um, let's see that there's uh, an opportunity here for people to think about things like how, why do we let, or it's made it so possible for folks that did have access at homes, like through like really hard times. And why is it so easy for predatory speculators to come in and pick that off of people? right? Because many times people don't really understand the value of their own property. That's one thing that we are actively trying to do. And um, it's a part of it is just like, we are often let, or no, we don't often, no one's letting it happen. But I think if you think about it, the way that predatory speculators have, have actually created, you know, like, we're just like a piece, communities like ours are literally, we're like a little line item on their spreadsheets. So having persuaded you, people who live in the community, that they're worth nothing, their property's worth nothing, because look, this is how it gets treated. Then you come in and say, I'll give you nothing for it. And that'll seem like something. But the developers do have a plan and they do see value in there. Developers absolutely have a plan. So to the little old lady, you know, who lives in a neighborhood that's a low status community and who's been watching it, like not get any better. So when someone shows up at her door and says, I can buy your house for cash, She's like, in this old crappy neighborhood, okay, I'll take it. Yeah. I'll move back to the islands or wherever. And, um, but we don't, because I think that's one of the problems that we have, that we're not supporting our own communities to actually be able to own, to own. And instead we're talking about, you know, they just need another program or maybe they'll be, provide some input into another developer who comes here. No. And that's why like the wealth gap is as large as it is and why it's keep, it will keep growing unless we're actually addressing this. So the other story that we did recently was follow the um, mayoral bid of India Walton in Buffalo, who, who had um, risen to, con you know, to 
public consciousness through her work with the land trust. On the ground in Buffalo, I found a lot of ambivalence about land trusts. Mm -hmm. They seem like a great thing from one point of view, taking land out of the speculative market, putting a cap on the capacity of an owner to flip their property. They can make some money, but not too much. Um, but to people in Buffalo, it was a real sense of why should our ownership be limited? Even people who didn't own houses yet. Um, can you talk about how you think about land trusts? And then I know that there's another project that we're, we're about to do a piece on that you're interested in, and I'd love to talk about that too. But we're trying to get to models that you think work, and land trusts get a lot of attention these days. They do, and I'm kind of with the, the folks who were ambivalent about them, you know, in Baltimore. Um, you know, why? It's, it's a tool, and I think on some level, yes, we should. it's not like just dismiss them, but don't just say, oh, that's all they need down there. Because if there are other, let it be a tool, you know, in a toolbox versus that's the only thing they can do. Like, why can't folks, you know, actually you do this, use the same exact tools that white families used in order to build, you know, their generational wealth. So a real GI bill for everybody? Real would, would have helped in a tremendous amount. So I think that's a helpful thing. You know, I mean, literally a hundred deals, real deals with real money go down when, while like community groups are just talking about land trusts. It's like one of those things, like keep busy on this side while they like, like the grown folks do work over here. That's one, what's happening. One person in Buffalo said, why don't they do a land trust downtown? Hello, why, exactly. Why are they doing it in, in, the, in the commercial real estate area? Yeah, so no, mm -mm. I mean. So I love the idea of a toolbox with lots of different tools. What other tools do you want to see in there? And then I want to talk about, of course, the Boogie Down um, Cafe. So talk first about some of the tools that might help. We've got a new administration coming in in the city with Mayor Eric Adams. We have a governor running for re-election, Kathy Hochul in the state. What tools do government agencies have at their disposal to do the kind of work that you're talking about? That, oh, this would be, I think, something that would just transform our communities. You know, the same way that um, if you commit a, or accused of committing a crime, then you get, you know, if you don't have um, access to counsel, the government will provide you with one. Six-figure real estate deals go down in communities like the South Bronx every other day. When predatory speculators show up at the homes of people you know, that don't really understand their asset or how to use it and basically cut a deal that is often for far less than what those people, what that house is, is, is worth. And they could actually use the, the equity in that house to do all sorts of things. But instead, our government all over this country, locally, everywhere, just lets those, those kind of deals go past the Department of Finance with nobody says a word about the fact that literally no one says like, are you sure you know what's, what's happening here? Like that, that literally this asset that you're, that you're selling for far less than it's worth, because we could see some of the tax records that some of the sales that, that, that have happened around here. Do you know that, that, that this is what it's worth or something like that, just so to let people know, but instead they just pass muster they just go right away and um 
you know, essentially what happens is that those that family's asset is just lost. So I'm hearing public real estate defenders. Good idea. I'm totally going to write that. (laughs) And then what about financial institutions? What exist and what do you need? And what have you used for your work? You know, I, you know, <laughs> I was my own bank. <laughs> I literally took, you know, I made every mistake the possible. I didn't use other people's money, um, you know, mostly because I just didn't know a lot of it. And I fortunately, you know, I used uh, all the funds from my consulting practice and invested it in what we were doing. And um, and so I literally just got some of my very first um, uh, bank financing, you know, just a year and a half ago, like just before COVID. Um, so that's what's sort of helpful uh, for our cafe and some other things. So that was great. But, um, you know, I do think that if there was more opportunities for the, um, you know, for, for banks to kind of look more, I think deeply at like what creates, a what's a good risk, then they would see that there's like the same way that like, you know, Grameen International like actually looked at alternative ways of assessing someone's risk and their willing and their ability to pay back something. That's, I think is gonna be really interesting to, you know, to support people as they start thinking about asset, um, you know, development for their own projects. And so that's really good. All right, so now I'm hearing public defenders for land, public land defenders, assets, real asset assessments of value, what actual value exists in a place. Heck, if you mentioned culture in, hip, in, in the South Bronx, you'd see them soar to the top of the charts. What about that question of self-perception, of culture, of, of talent in a place? Because it doesn't feature anywhere on anybody's application form the talent that's in their, in their family, in their bones, in their community. Right. And that's what I think, you know, in terms of the brain drain that our communities experience, like they do see it, but again, they tend to take it out of the, of our, the communities they were born and raised in. What we're trying to do is help people see that, that, that talent was actually nurtured in a community like ours. And it would be amazing if we could actually take it back and work to create more opportunities for us to, to benefit from their talent and also for others to see the future the, of, of others that look just like them, you know, doing this kind of work. Um, so I think that's what's super important, you know, about it as well. So that takes us to the boogie down grind. Talk about it. Where did the idea come from? How did you raise the money? And how did you sort of ride the waves of COVID? Yeah. So we, um, you know, I, we had actually acquired like two pretty inexpensive leases. And our goal, we because we did all sorts of surveys, you know, to as a early real estate developer, we just asked folks like, what were they leaving the community for to where, where do they spend their money? You know, what, what um, were their hopes and dreams and aspirations for the kind of community they wanted to live in? And what came back were things like cafes and bars and restaurants and cool places to hang out. And so we acquired these two pretty cheap leases, you know, with uh, from a, a landowner in the community, and we tried to get a coffee shop to come in, <laughs> and you know, like we won't say the name of the really big one who basically said no, that a market's too emerging, and uh, so they didn't come, and we couldn't find anybody else to to open up a cafe, so we decided to do it ourselves, and so yeah, it was it was 
all our money that we, um, you know, had saved up and, you know, plunked down into this place, had no idea what we were doing. Fortunately, we got a partner um, to help us um, open it up on the, uh, on the coffee side, which is Birch Coffee. And, you know, they own plenty of stores in Manhattan. And, uh, but then we realized that what we needed to, to, to go our separate waves and they're still amazing. Um, but that's when we decided that we were going to literally like, you know, as the kids say, put some stank on it and, um, you know, really like go back to our culture, which is the South Bronx and it's, it's hip hop. I mean, this is the birthplace of it. So we decided to call it the boogie down grind and really make it an homage, you know, to the creativity and the talent that in the community that literally birthed hip hop, you know, the cultural phenomenon that it is, but it's ours, literally. I mean, we share it with everybody, but it's ours. And um, so the nice thing about that was that once we built this beautiful space and, you know, when it came and so we'd like literally plastered the walls with these like early hip hop albums and it was just super fun and really kind of cool. And, um, you know, and that's when the community, they were seemed to be enticed to stay because there was someplace cool that, that literally spoke to them and that they were allowed to be them their best selves. As a matter of fact, it was insisted upon. Um, so there were people decided to come and do open mics and um, you know credit repair workshops, uh, book readings, um, music events. I mean, it with this tiny little space and it was really, really awesome um, to have something like that where folks were just sort of like, I didn't know we could do something like this in the neighborhood. And they came. Then COVID hit, and I was just like, "Oh my God, what's going to happen here?" And um, you know, because we'd been at it for for a couple of years at that point, and we were just at the point where it's just like, "Okay, we're going to like actually be in the black this year." And then COVID happened, and and then we were like, "Well, maybe not this year." And uh, but we ended up getting we closed down like everybody else did for a while, but we got a grant from the from Beyonce's foundation. And we decided to use it to make some outdoor seating because, you know, especially during 2020, you couldn't really be, um, you know, inside at very low uh, occupancy rates. And so then we took all of that activity outside and we literally like hung, you know, artists work, you know, from between a lamppost and a tree. And, you know, they, that's, it was, it was an outdoor, you know, exhibition, like every other day, um, you know, we put a microphone on the corner and, and folks would come and do their, their, all their artistic things. It was, it was truly amazing. And, and it was so beautiful because one of the things that makes me super happy about that was that, you know, people were just like coming up to us and saying things like, you know, I haven't heard that much joy on, on that street corner in years. And I was like, yeah, like y'all did that. I mean, we just made the space, but the community filled it and their joy is what's overflowing out of it. You do mention in the book that a year after the Boogie Down Grind, or maybe it was a couple of years, um, opened and that aforementioned coffee chain that had uh, turned you down in the beginning came back around. They were now looking indeed to open their own. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about that? And how do you address the fact that it's inevitable that developing a place develops the interest of outsiders in coming and and mining what's there? And that's to be expected. However, you know, what's super important here, you know, is that, you know, what we want to do is retain the talent and then create more opportunities for ownership by people there, because there will be folks coming in. 
But if we can kind of set the conditions so that folks, the talent that's already there can also participate, then we have a, a community. We have a much more you know, economically diverse ecosystem that creates opportunities for people that are already there who can then you know, be like, okay, yeah, 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 we know this, this aforementioned, you know, chains here, but guess what? There's another one, you know, that wants to do this. So does that look like economic diversity requirements, regulations, um, what? I wouldn't say requirements or even regulations. I mean, I feel like right now in the more concentrated poverty, you know, or poverty prone areas within, um, definitely in New York, it almost is legislated, you know, because that's where you see such huge amount of publicly subsidized, you know, housing, you know, the developers are doing it, you know, not because of the kindness of their hearts, because they love poor people. It's like, there's huge developer fees in it. Like like that's why it happens. And um, so I think that it's, so we don't need to necessarily create you know, another like legislative lane for that. What we really need are just opportunities for people within our own community to be a part of the ownership trajectory. Sometimes it's as simple as keeping the family's home within the family. And, you know, and I could say that like, because my own family didn't keep my family home. And that's, and it's, that's still like, it's so painful, you know, to me, but the thing is, I think we've got an opportunity to sort of like create more of an understanding that if we just keep what we got, that's actually a good way to start the trajectory for many folks in our communities to build generational wealth locally. So you're talking about a different model for community development. You're also talking about a different model of community investment. Um, investment by community members in community facilities and enterprises and businesses. And, and one that you have kicked off is a project you're calling Box, uh, Bronxlandia. And it's in an old, beautiful, abandoned train station. Um, who can be part of that? Who is part of that so far? And what's your vision there? So um, the SEC did a really wonderful thing where they changed their regulations um, that allowed for just non-accredited investors. So those are investors that actually make a... They did it after a lot of organizing and activism and pressure. Absolutely. (laughs) So I'm glad they did it, you know, and thank you for all your work. Um, Because what it did do was create the opportunity so that just not only super wealthy rich people with lots of assets under their belt could invest in real estate and other types of business projects, but ones that were not, but who wanted the, the, the same kind of proportional rate of return for their money to be in those in those deals. And that I think was just a, an amazing thing to happen. You know, we actually use, um, you know, a crowdfunding uh, a campaign when we reopened the Boogie Down Grind, you know, in part because it was just like, could we have a little bit of cushion, which would be great. Um, but the other piece was like, we wanted people to see that this is something that happens. And most folks were just like, wait, we can invest? Like, that's not something we do. And it's just like, well, you can now. And um, so we're also doing the same kind of pro- the same kind of um, uh, investment strategy where we're building. I mean, this is a much bigger project. It's going to be a, a two million dollar redevelopment where we're taking this historic, you know, Cass Gilbert designed rail station. It's the same one, uh, the same architect that did the Woolworth buildings, one of my favorite buildings in the world. And um, 
So he did these little rail stations, you know, yours truly actually acquired one a few years ago, and we're going to transform it into an event venue. And the acoustics in it are already like right now, super hot. Um, and uh, so it's good. So I, I really, I want it to be like the best music venue ever. And it's going to be, that's, that's my, that's my prayer. Um, but so what we're so what we're doing is a part of our capital stack is definitely going to be you know part of the um, uh, you know for a, a crowdfunding investment platform where we'll up, give an opportunity to folks you know for as little as like about two hundred and fifty dollars you know have a, a a stake you know within the development of the of Bronxlandia. So just to circle back, it used to be if you wanted to be an investor in a new business, you had to be what the Securities and Exchange Commission called a certified investor. And that meant that you were willing to invest, I think it was a $2,000 bottom threshold. It might have been a bit less than that. But that kind of cut out all your friends and relations if they wanted to help you start something. That rule got changed in the last few years. And that has really opened up possibilities. Yes. For our crowdfunding investment strategy that we did for the, for the cafe, um, you know, our floor was $100. And we raised $50,000. And I would say the bulk of the 120 some odd uh, investors were had un, put in under $300. So that makes me super proud that enough folks were number one, were interested in supporting, um, you know, a local, very local project. Um, but they also got a, a chance to actually invest, period. And it was often their first time ever doing anything like that. Well, it's a beautiful set of initiatives and it's exciting to watch. I'm glad that we've remained in touch over the years and that we will, with any luck, be able to see this um, Bronxlandia kick off and be there on the opening night. I want to thank you, Majora, for all that you're doing. Go ahead. We did a, like a little sneak peek of what Bronxlandia could be uh, back on December 11th when we, because my James and I actually started the initial demolition and did the fill the first 30 yard dumpster, you know, for for like all the blah, set almost 70 years of really bad construction was inside that building and we ripped it down to the walls. But then we had a, a pop-up shop during the day. Uh, the actor Malik Yoba showed, screened his um, uh, his series called I Build New York. It's uh, the, the real estate mixtapes. It's all about, you know, the history of real estate development in New York City. And then in the evening, it was a both a hip hop and a, and, a, and a rock showcase. It was, it was pretty hot. So. <laughs> all right, I'll come to the next opening. <laughs> I want to end by just coming back to the beginning. Um, we often ask on this program, you know, what is it that leads you to believe, or not just believe, but was there ever a moment in your life where you felt that the changes you believe in are not just possible, but happening? And I want to ask you about that in this moment. You know, the Bronx has yet to emerge from its categories at the bottom of health indices and inequality indices and poverty indices. Um, COVID has only made things worse. You have a different vision. You're not alone. You need help, need things to change. Um, what experience has given you a taste that it's happening? Gosh, um, I have so many experiences that remind me that things are changing and that they've always been right there. 
because we've took the time to recognize that our community was filled with talented people. We just needed to give it a place to, to see itself. And because reclaiming, it involves retaining the talent that's already there to improve their own surroundings and their own economic future. Um, because there's always been value in our communities. And, and, you know, and we know that we could and should aspire to something that's economically and emotionally and spiritually meaningful to ourselves. We just have to give ourselves the opportunity to do that. I think we have what we need. We kept you longer than we said. My only question is whether you want to go back to the very beginning. Um, just for one answer, in the sense that that was deep, that fire happening. And people did see it on TV. And it was your classic, you know, heartbreak story. And I bet, well, I anyway, felt both sad and furious that this was still friggin' happening after all this time and all this money and all this awareness. It reminded me of that building in, in London, the same thing. It's like, how dare you? You've been receiving warnings for a gazillion years and yet you let this slide because those people didn't matter. How dare you? <laughs> and that investigation has in, the UK, in London has really sparked a lot of change. Um, but this one, I'm just not sure if it will. And I don't know the details. You know them better than I. But, but just as a person watching it, um, you want to just share what was going through your mind? Look, my heart went out to the people that were there. And, you know, and just knowing the little that I knew about, um, you know, some of the buildings up there wasn't the best. But the bottom line is we've got a lot of those buildings, right? And that in and of itself should tell us something about what are, what's the kind of quality of life we expect people in communities like the South Bronx to be living in. And is that all that, is that the best we can do? The answer for that would be no. And that's why I think it's so important to really think about opportunities that we, you know, as folks who are from our, that, those communities to really be in the space where they're building more for themselves, the kind of future that they wanna create versus um, what's expected to happen in those communities because there's, Mm. There should be, there is something in between, you know, gentrification that displaces us and poverty level economic maintenance, you know, as, as evidenced by like the quality of some of those buildings um, that we still have in this borough. And to me, it's talent retention, making sure that we've got the tools to redefine and redevelop a future that we want to be in. That was great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you.